Reading, short and deep. Hi, I'm Jesse, and I'm Eric. And today we're reading short and deep from the tomb by Guy de Maupassant. This is first published in Le Galois, a newspaper uh, in uh, France, call, uh, on uh, 14th of July, 1884, under the title Le Tic. Uh, tic is T-I-C. Um, there is a more transliterative title uh, in English, but this is the most common, uh, as in from from the tomb. Uh, and transliterative, that, you mean? Yeah. It says the word T I C. No, no, it says spasm. Oh, you mean more literal? Yes, ah. yes. And uh, there's been a couple other uninteresting title changes as well. It's a very, um, it's not you know top tier famous Guy de Maupassant. It's not a ball of fat or uh, the Horla. But uh, it's pretty famous in my mind. It's I've I've read it years and years and years ago, um, and it sticks out in a way that many Maupassant stories do. Um, and I'm not exactly sure why, because there's a lot of material that isn't the core of the story, if you know what I mean. You know, I'm not sure that I do, but I think once, um, if if you'd like me to read it, mm-hmm. um, then I will at some point soon, and then maybe we can discuss that so that uh, other people, too, can think about whether or not your notion of core um, gets them to what they might think of as core. That's mm-hmm. a, an interesting question, since it's a, it's a nested narrative. It is. Um, um, I'd also point out, by the way, just you know, uh, it, it's wonderful to me the insight that Maupassant has into people, and he's a guy who died, you know, what at forty-three? I mean, very young. He's yeah, he's just in his thirties when he publishes this thing. Um, he really was quite insightful. The the French is excellent as far as I can tell. I'm not fluent in French, but I read it passably, but. The English, um, I must say, uh, is a good translation. Mm -hmm. That is, it reads well as a story in English, but it is not, in fact, literal. Um, The word tick means nervous tick, Mm -hmm. and that is a good translation. Better, better, I think, than spasm. Um, It fits uh, the story. Yeah. And the very first sentence, for example, we encounter the word leisurely, but the French is doucement, which in this instance of its several meanings means slowly, not leisurely. So it's not a perfect translation, but it's a pretty good translation mm-hmm. um, by by one of the acknowledged masters of the short story. Shall we read it now? Please. From the Tomb. The guests filed slowly into the hotel's great dining hall and took their places. The waiters began to serve them leisurely to give the tardy ones time to arrive and to save themselves the bother of bringing back the courses. And the old bathers, the yearly habitués, with whom the season was far advanced, kept a close watch on the door each time it opened, hoping for the coming of new faces. New faces! The single distraction of all pleasure resorts. 
We go to dinner chiefly to canvas the daily arrivals, to wonder who they are, what they do, and what they think. A restless desire seems to have taken possession of us, a longing for pleasant adventures, for friendly acquaintances, perhaps for possible lovers. In this elbow-to-elbow life, our unknown neighbors become of paramount importance. Curiosity is piqued, sympathy on the alert, and the social instinct doubly active. We have hatreds for a week, friendships for a month, and view all men with the special eyes of watering place intimacy. Sometimes during an hour's chat after dinner under the trees of the park where ripples a healing spring, we discover men of superior intellect and surprising merit, and a month later have wholly forgotten these new friends, so charming at first sight. There, too, more specially than elsewhere, serious and lasting ties are formed. We see each other every day. We learn to know each other very soon. And in the affection that springs up so rapidly between us, there is mingled much of the sweet abandon of old and tried intimates. And later on, how tender are the memories cherished of the first hours of this friendship, of the first communion in which the soul came to light, of the first glances that questioned and responded to the secret thoughts and interrogatories the lips have not dared yet to utter, of the first cordial confidence and delicious sensation of opening one's heart to someone who has seemed to lay bare to you his own, the very dullness of the hours, as it were, the monotony of days all alike, but renders more complete the rapid budding and blooming of friendship's flower. That evening then, as on every evening, we awaited the appearance of unfamiliar faces. There came only two, but very peculiar ones, those of a man and a woman, father and daughter. They seemed to have stepped from the pages of some weird legend, and yet there was an attraction about them albeit an unpleasant one, that made me set them down at once as the victims of some fatality. The father was tall, spare, a little bent, with hair blanched white, too white for his still young countenance, and in his manner and about his person, the sedate austerity of carriage that bespeaks the Puritan. The daughter was, possibly, some 24, 25 years of age. She was very slight, emaciated, her exceedingly pale countenance bearing a languid, spiritless expression. One of those people whom we sometimes encounter, apparently too weak for the cares and tasks of life, too feeble to move or do the things that we must do every day. Nevertheless, the girl was pretty with the ethereal beauty of an apparition. It was she, undoubtedly, who came for the benefit of the waters. They chanced to be placed at table immediately opposite to me, and I was not long in noticing that the father, too, had a strange affection, something wrong about the nerves, it seemed. Whenever he was going to reach for anything, his hand, with a jerky twitch, described a sort of fluttering zigzag before he was able to grasp what he was after. Soon the motion disturbed me so much I kept my head turned in order not to see it, but not before I had also observed that the young girl kept her glove on her left hand while she ate. Dinner ended. I went out as usual for a turn in the grounds belonging to the establishment, a sort of park, I might say, stretching clear to the little station of Auvergne, Chatel-Guillon, 
nestling in a gorge at the foot of the high mountain from which flowed the sparkling, bubbling springs, hot from the furnace of an ancient volcano. Beyond us there, the dome, small, extinct craters of which Chatel Guillon is the starting point, raised their serrated heads above the long chain, while beyond the domes came two distinct regions, one of them needle-like peaks and the other of bold, precipitous mountains. It was very warm that evening, and I contented myself with pacing to and fro under the rustling trees, gazing at the mountains and listening to the strains of the band pouring from the casino situated on a knoll that overlooked the grounds. Presently, I perceived the father and daughter coming toward me with slow steps. I bowed to them in that pleasant continental fashion with which one always salutes his hotel companions. The gentleman halted at once. Pardon me, sir, said he, but may I ask if you can direct us to a short walk, easy and pretty, if possible? Certainly, I answered, and offered to lead them myself to the valley through which the swift river flows, a deep, narrow cleft between two great declivities, rocky and wooded. They accepted, and as we walked, we naturally discussed the virtues of the mineral waters they had, as I had surmised, come there on his daughter's account. She has a strange malady, said he, the seat of which her physicians cannot determine. She suffers from the most inexplicable nervous symptoms. Sometimes they declare her ill of a heart disease, sometimes of a liver complaint, again of spinal trouble. At present, they attribute it to the stomach, that great motor and regulator of the body, this protein disease of a thousand forms, a thousand modes of attack. It is why we're here. I myself think it is her nerves. In any case, it is sad. This reminded me of his own jerking hand. It may be hereditary, said I. Your own nerves are a little disturbed, are they not? Mine, he answered. Tranquilly, not at all. I have always possessed the calmest nerves. Then suddenly, as if bethinking himself, up for this, touching his hand, is not nerves, but the result of a shock, a terrible shock that I suffered once. Fancy it, sir. This child of mine has been buried alive. I could find nothing to say. I was dumb with surprise. Yes, he continued, buried alive, but hear the story. It is not long, for some time past, Juliette had seemed affected with a disordered action of the heart. We were finally certain that the trouble was organic and feared the worst. One day it came. She was brought in lifeless, dead. She had fallen dead while walking in the garden. Physicians came in haste, but nothing could be done. She was gone. For two days and nights, I watched beside her myself and with my own hands, placed her in her coffin, which I followed to the cemetery and saw placed in the family vault. This was in the country, in the province of Lorraine. It had been my wish, too, that she should be buried in her jewels, bracelets, necklace, and rings, all presents that I had given her, and in her first ball dress. You can imagine, sir, the state of my heart in returning home. She was all that I had left. My wife had been dead for many years. I returned, in truth, half mad, shut myself alone in my room, and fell into my chair, dazed, unable to move, merely a miserable breathing wreck. Soon my old valet, Prosper, who 
who had helped me place Juliette in her coffin and lay her away for her last sleep, came in noiselessly to see if he could not induce me to eat. I shook my head, answering nothing. He persisted, Monsieur is wrong. This will make him ill. Will Monsieur allow me then to put him to bed? No, no, I answered, let me alone. He yielded and withdrew. How many hours passed, I do not know. What a night, what a night. It was very cold. My fire of logs had long since burned out in the great fireplace, and the wind, a wintry blast charged with an icy frost, howled and screamed about the house, and strained at my windows with a curiously sinister sound. Long hours, I say, rolled by. I sat still where I had fallen, prostrated, overwhelmed, my eyes wide open, but my body strengthless, dead, my soul drowned in despair. Suddenly the great bell gave a loud peal. I gave such a leap that my chair cracked under me. The slow, solemn sound rang through the empty house. I looked at the clock. It was two in the morning. Who could be coming at such an hour? Twice again, the bell pulled sharply. The servants would never answer, perhaps, perhaps never hear it. I took up a candle and made my way to the door. I was about to demand, who is there? But ashamed of the weakness, nerved myself and drew back the bolts. My heart throbbed, my pulse beat, I th threw back the panel brusquely and there in the darkness saw a shape like a phantom dressed in white. I recoiled speechless with anguish, stammering, who, who are you? A voice answered, it is I, father. It was my child, Juliette. Truly, I thought myself mad. I shuddered, shrinking backward before the specter as it advanced, gesticulating with my hand to ward off the apparition. It is that gesture which has never left me. Again, the phantom spoke. Father, father, see, I am not dead. Someone came to rob me of my jewels. They cut off my finger. The, the, the flowing blood revived me. And I saw then that she was covered with blood. I fell to my knees, panting, sobbing, laughing all in one. As soon as I regained my senses, but still so bewildered, I scarcely comprehended the happiness that had come to me. I took her in my arms, carried her to her room, and rang frantically for Prosper to rekindle the fire, bring a warm drink for her, and go for the doctor. He came running, entered, gazed a moment at my daughter in the chair, gave a gasp of fright and horror, and fell back dead. It was he who had opened the vault, who had wounded and robbed my child, and then abandoned her, for he could not efface all trace of his deed, and he had not even taken the trouble to return the coffin to its niche. Sure, besides, of not being suspected by me, who trusted him so fully, we are truly very unfortunate people, monsieur. He was silent. Meanwhile, the night had come on, enveloping in the gloom the still and solitary little valley. A sort of mysterious dread seemed to fall upon me in presence of these strange beings. This corpse come to life and this father with his painful gestures. Let us return, said I. The night has grown chill. 
And still in silence, we retraced our steps back to the hotel. And I, shortly afterward, returned to the city. I lost all further knowledge of the two peculiar visitors to my favorite summer resort. It's a ghost story, kind of. Kind of. Kind of. Um, when uh, you look it up on ISFDB, Internet Science Fiction Database, they they usually make arguments as to why something should be included if it's not actually a ghost story, if it's not actually science fiction, if it's not actually fantasy. This one doesn't do that many apologies, um, but it does mention, you know, it's sort of almost not genre. Unless you think of it as a horror story, I would say. Um, and certainly, I think it it is inspired by, uh, you know, the guy who created almost all of this, which is Edgar Allan Poe. Um, this is very much like a scene from The Raven. We've got a, uh, a man deep in the night during a storm hearing things from the window, hearing things from the door. He goes to the door, and instead of seeing a ghost there, like we see here, or a woman uh, back from the dead, um, we see nothing. And then the raven comes in through the window, and the story continues there. Here, it's almost it's almost like this is a uh, half the raven and half the fall of the House of Usher. <laughs> And yet, almost, I would say about 70% of the story is not uh, about that core. It's about the experience of visiting a hotel or a resort. Or I was thinking, like, you could do this on a cruise ship. You meet a bunch of strangers, you eat food, you talk, you talk about the food, you look out the window and look at the ocean you look at the mountain, you know, you walk around the, the spa and you make some friendships. And then some of those you'll be friends with for the rest of your life and some you'll never see again. He's, it's mostly about that in, in terms of content. And yet that's not, it, it's not there uselessly. It's there, I think, in a very important way, but I can't explain why. Have you got any idea? <laughs> I do, uh, and I'd like to offer it in a moment, but I just want to say, in terms of the Poe background, um, which I think is right right on, Jesse, uh, the story that came to my mind was Lygia. Oh, sure. Which is the, the one about a, a, a dead previous wife, thought, supposed dead, coming back and mm -hmm. taking over the body of someone who's already there, so the, the dead live again, which is what's happening here. Um, but all of them, it's it's a it's a it's a Poe esque story without being so. a, a, re, a re rewriting of a particular Poe story. Uh, I think that uh, you're right. I, the word core, when you used it earlier, made me think that you were going to be pointing us to the story within the story. Mm -hmm. But now it's clear that, like me, you think that the story is really a story about the narrator, um, or I shouldn't yeah. say that. In all nested narratives, I've mentioned this to you before, um, I have noticed that, in, that no matter what else may be going on, 
the story that is in a, a fully nested with both front frame and back frame, mm-hmm. um, the the story, whatever else is going on, is about the education of the outermost narrator. Right. It's what is it that that speaker comes to know? In this case, as you say, there's it's it's a there's a lot of material about the outermost narrator mm-hmm. giving us his his sense of what's going on in the world and and how people behave at summer resorts. Um, there, the way they behave is. Um, I think there's a lot of insight here about mm-hmm. how friendships are made and so on, but there's something else that's missing. What's that? And I think, well, I think Maupassant leaves it as a glaring silence intentionally. We don't know why the narrator comes to this Indeed. favorite summer resort of his. It certainly is not to spend a pleasant time with his wife. We have no mention of there being any other person with whom he speaks. Mm-hmm. We gather from the brief description of the meal at which he spots the uh, the father and daughter having dinner and sees their his the, t- the two hands, one with a tick and one missing a finger. Mm. Um, right? There is a manual problem here, um, and he seems to be at his own table alone. Mm-hmm. So you begin to wonder, how do you make a life? The last line, I lost all further knowledge of the two peculiar visitors to my favorite summer resort. It's almost as if Maupassant, the implied author behind the narrator, Mm -hmm. is letting us realize that this clearly entitled person, as we would use the word these days, someone who just assumes his privilege, who just naturally has money, who just naturally has leisure, who just thinks, well, of course I can do all of these things. And so he can be polite and he can be that this kind of a person doesn't really care about other people. I think in some sense, this is a story that's meant to reveal something at bottom, rotten mm-hmm. about the class structure mm-hmm. of bourgeois France in the second half of the 19th century. And, and we see this in brisk, but that is quick, but telling details. Prosper, obviously a name having to do with prospering and mm-hmm. doing well, and right? Prosper can only prosper really by stealing because he's... He may be a trusted valet or in French or valet in British English, um, but clearly he, he is not to be trusted. <laughs> he, he's, and, and our narrator doesn't realize that, I mean, the inner narrator has not realized that this servant is just being his servant because he has no economic alternative to being a servant, mm-hmm. right? That's not trust. That is the the chains of capitalism, mm-hmm. or certainly the chain chains of wealth, I should say. Um, but these these people, the father and daughter, and the narrator, are living on accumulated wealth. Mm-hmm. They care so little for wealth that they can just bury it. Yep. And our narrator, our outer narrator, makes no mention of it. 
But the fact that the inner narrator says my wife had been dead for many years, I had nothing else but my daughter is, I think, the author's way of reminding us where are wives, where are relationships. We are told that summer romances come and go, Mm -hmm. but we're not told that real marriages come from this. Families don't develop from this. It might be a friendship, but nothing more than that. The, the, The healing waters are between two deep declive, two steep declivities. Mm-hmm. Um, it's as if you have to climb up and then you risk falling in. It also looks anatomically like something mm-hmm. that um, uh, is the place where our outer narrator is glad to lead them. Another glaring silence that has to do with female anatomy and female companionship is that Juliet, a name after all, which is already quite well known because the Shakespeare play is universally mm-hmm. known, um, Juliet speaks not a word. Yep. So I think what we have here is a very subtle story that criticizes basically a male class-based patriarchy that subsumes everything, the lower economic classes and women, to its desire. It appears as if it is polite, open, and friendly. But in fact, to get what it wants, once it is shocked into realizing that it can lose what it wants, it has to take a zigzag route. It has no choice but to recognize that it can't get directly what it wants because directly what it wants can be taken from it. But our narrator doesn't seem to recognize that. In fact, he gives a demonstration of it by failing to remember these people pursuing them at all. Mm. There's, there's only two named characters in the story. One is Juliet and the other is Prosper. Again, uh, Shakespeare, Prospero. Um, but in both of these cases, these are not the characters from those Shakespearean plays. Prosper is a powerful wizard. Um, Prospero is a powerful wizard. Juliet is a uh, a damsel who uh, dies and then comes back to life, but she has a Romeo. <laughs> There's no Romeo here. Uh, even though I've read this story before, I somehow somehow thought maybe maybe. And I thought of the outer narrator as Montpassant. It feels like it's a true story. Montpassant would romance the younger daughter, um, despite her not having a finger. <laughs> it's it's uh, the hand stuff is there absolutely. Both of them have hand issues, um, but whatever causes Montpassant to visit or the outer narrator to visit this resort and. I looked. I happened to look it up the other day in an unrelated word, but the word resort means to visit again. Um, it's it's not a place you go to just the one time. You go there, and then you go there again. And well, the, the Rian resort means to go there, but the sortie, uh, sortir means uh, to go to go out. Mm-hmm. So you go out again from where you are. Yes. But when we yeah. think about like uh, there's a uh, I, I see uh, 
trucks driving by and it names the resort that's near here. And I was thinking, why is that? Why is it called a resort? Um, People, when they vacate their homes and they go on vacation, they do have these experiences that I think uh, Montpessant captures almost perfectly in the opening, the, the philosophy of what's going on there when you meet a bunch of strangers and your job mostly is to walk around and swim and eat. <laughs> that is not uh, the same as your everyday life. Your neighbors there become important in a way that your neighbors in your own town are not important. They are for your entertainment. And and in that, I think there's something too. Um, I noticed the, there's two other things I noticed. One is a pattern, um, that which lies beneath. I, I made my note. Uh, the waters of this uh, mm-hmm. resort, the volcano, which heats the waters, and, of course, the, the glove. And and then, of course, there's the story behind why the daughter wears a glove at meals, one glove at meals, and why the man's hand uh, does the zigzag pattern, whatever he reaches for anything. Um, he says that his nerves are fine, um, and that this was caused by a... Uh, experience, and then he relates the experience. But are his nerves fine if it, <laughs> if it does that every time? Um, I don't think so. It seems that she was always sickly. She was sickly before the incident. But he has only become problem problem with his hand since the incident. And I think that's pretty interesting. The other... Oh, go for it. I was just going to say, I'm, I'm agreeing with almost everything you're saying, but if I, if I understood you correctly, I may not have. I, I wouldn't agree that the outermost narrator ought to be equated with Maupassant because the, the silent implied author has created enough, in, uh, has made available enough criticism of that outermost narrator that he too falls under the same um, stricture that we would see he's too damned entitled he's too damned complacent and, and he uh, doesn't even have a daughter there right he's there exactly. by himself nor a wife and, and this he is says, a, a he remarkably says, soulless place he says we he, whenever he's talking you know we go to dinner we do this they sat before us right but he's talking right. Not about him and his companion, I don't think, because there's no companion mentioned, but rather him as a part of a group. It's almost like he goes there so that he can have someone to talk to, um, which Jeez. is sad enough. But uh, I wanted to um, to point to when his daughter comes in out of the out of the rainstorm, um, you know, bleeding from uh, a missing finger. It's a powerful, powerful image. Um, he calls for his servant to help. Um, so this is what it says. As soon as I regained my senses, but still so, bil- so bewildered I scarcely comprehended the happiness that came to me, I took her in my arms, carried her to her room, and rang frantically for Prosper to rekindle the fire, bring a warm drink for her, and to go for the doctor. All of these things seem reasonable. You know, if, if something like this happened to you, you would want to marshal all your resources in your home. However, 
Prosper's job is always to rekindle the fire and to get the food and to take somebody to bed and make their bed and probably dress them. I mean, he's a valet, right? It's almost as if it is a problem within the class because we know what Prosper's problem is. He doesn't have money. He wants money. (laughs) He wants to do well. But when you do do well and you have no other heirs and your daughter is very sickly and now she's missing a finger, the only attraction perhaps to this, maybe she can't even speak. It's, it's not clear, right? After this incident, she spoke, we're told. But all of that is, it's, I, I, I picture them walking into this valley and he's talking about his daughter. Is she sitting or standing right beside him as they stride? As he tells this story of what happened, or is she ahead, or is she behind? I wonder what she thinks of this narrative, because it is a recounting of what happened, certainly. But it's he's using her voice. He speaks for her. So it's it goes deeper and deeper, and hidden deep underneath is that Prosper character, right? Who I guess mm-hmm. is there, in one sense, to have cut off the finger and drop the daughter back to life. A thing that the doctors can't ever seem to do. He right. did. Very interesting. And there's some sort of major social criticism going on, and yet it's so subtle, it just stands out as a, a powerful story without, without saying, this is what I'm doing. <laughs> exactly. Oh, no, it's, it's, it really is a wonderful story, but it requires slowing down. Mm-hmm. That, as I said, uh, and I'm, this is meant to agree with your, your, your pointing to Juliet's, Juliet's silences. The father carries her to bed. Mm-hmm. The father dresses her. Mm-hmm. The father, right? she is a doll for him. Mm-hmm. He says she was all I had. And and that's not bad if it's a metaphor, but if he thinks of her as a possession, it's very bad. And indeed, she becomes the object of contention between the father who would bury her with the jewels he wants to be able to think of her bearing and Prosper, who wants the jewels. Um, There's class warfare going on here silently, recognizing he has been absolutely found out because she can identify him prosper drops dead he's the one with a heart problem yep but his is not organic his is economic yep this is a story and you've just pointed us to one place where even in the silences there's always more to say thanks very much for listening and remember You can always freely access the materials discussed on these podcasts by going to sffaudio.com and clicking on the link for Reading Short and Deep. If you enjoyed this podcast, consider becoming a patron at patreon.com forward slash sffaudio.